So we are live. Good evening and welcome to the first session of Contemporary Shemitah, Challenges and Compliance, Relevance and Rebirth with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukir. The biblical challenge of Shemitah, wherein the land must lie fallow an entire year on a regular basis, originally applied to a world with radically different economic realities, expectations, and constraints from the world we live in today. To that end, since the return of a large communal presence in Eretz Israel, Jewish communal presence in Eretz Israel, in the late 19th century, the prospect of contemporary Shemitah has posed a unique challenge within the realm of Jewish observance. This class considers different aspects of that challenge as well as proposed resolutions over the centuries, from the legal and ethical debates over Hetzer to discussions around whether and how it might be possible to restore the thematic relevance and meaning of Shemitah today. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukir is Drisha's Director of Education and a member of our faculty, a research fellow in philosophy at religion at Notre Dame. He recently uh, received his PhD in ancient Judaism at Yale University and was a member of Shiva University Sekola Elyon. Previously, he served as director of the Orthodox Union's Jewish Learning Initiative on campus at Yale University and as the flag postdoctoral fellow in Jewish studies at McGill University. Zukir, Rabbi Zukir is an alumnus of Yeshivat Haaretzion and Rabbi Isaac Elhanan Theological Seminary, as well as the Wexter and Tikva Fellowships. He has lectured and taught widely across North America, as well as at Yale Divinity School, Yeshiva University, the Tikva Fund, and Benoit Sinai. A founder of the Lair House, Rabbi Zagir serves on the editorial committee of tradition and has edited two books on contemporary Jewish thought. We ask that those with us here on Zoom please stay muted outside of times when discussion, questions, and answers are invited uh, just to minimize background noise. And if you would be comfortable joining us on camera, we really appreciate the feeling it lends to our learning community to be able to look around the room and see one another's faces. Feel free to type questions into the chat. If you're joining us on Facebook, post your comments below the video and we'll bring them over here. And to those joining us on Drisha Live, hi, good evening. Uh, Rabbi Zukir will be sharing his source sheet on screen. Kayla sent it out earlier by email, but I will also provide a link in the chat for your convenience. Without further ado, Rabbi Zukir. Hey, thank you so much, Noah. And uh, it's great uh, everyone to have you here and to learn together. As, uh, as Noah shared in the description, uh, our goal is gonna be to think about what Shemitah stands for, Shemitah, what the, the themes of Shemitah are, and the challenge of implementing them today. This is a three-part series. Today, we're gonna try to set the stage first with a general survey of some of the more central themes of Shemitah, um, you know, painting with a broad brush uh, to try to cover that, and then to think about why that might not be applicable today and how uh, you know how how Shemitah might not apply in its classical form, and uh, how one might think about that before we move on to uh, the specifics. Uh, the next two weeks will be on on some of the halachic problems around uh, producing and consuming food during the Shemitah year, and then the final week on different creative approaches on how to recreate Shemitah uh, in uh, in our world, even even with uh, some of the challenges. So that's our plan. And again, today, we're going to start with a general overview of the central themes and the central sources of Shemitah. And, and uh, again, as, uh, as Noah said, everyone's welcome to raise uh, questions and to, to have some discussion along the way. I'm going to share screen now 
so that uh, we're working with the same sources. Um, so you have that here. Okay, and uh, Shemitah appears several different places in the Torah and uh, with different emphases in each place, and there's different aspects to Shemitah. So we're just going to run through some of those and pick up uh, some of the larger points. So starting with Shmos, uh, you should plant uh, the plant your crops for six years, right? Just like Sheshes Yamim Tavo, you should work for six days, you should, you should plant for six years. But in the seventh year, right? Shemot means to sort of let go, leave behind. So the seventh year, you should uh, leave it, uh, leave it behind, let it, let it lie fallow. And what does that lead to? The poor will be able to eat because you're not taking the food you produce for yourself. You sort of leave whatever's in the field for whoever will take it, including and especially the poor. When the poor have had what they want, the animals can eat it. Really, the land, uh, the produce is for everyone, not just the landowners, but for the poor and, and even for uh, for animals. Not just fields, but vineyards, olives, all the main sources of produce for all produce. And uh, then then uh, in parallel, the very next Pasuk talks about days. You work for six days and you rest on the seventh. In order that your ox or donkey rest uh, as your uh, your maidservant or uh, or the uh, the stranger can rest as well. So there's actually a big debate among Chazal as to whether Pasuk Yudbeis we just read is actually talking about days of the week or years, whether it's also talking about Shemitah or it's talking about Shabbos. Leaving that aside, however you read it, there's a deep thematic connection between Shemitah and Shabbos, right? You do you work for six uh, days or years, and then you rest on the seventh year. In a sense, Shemitah is a Shabbos writ large, right? You don't you refrain from doing work instead of the 39 categories of work. There's a more limited set of categories of work uh, of working the land. That's all clear. But just focusing on the themes that we have here, you're supposed to leave the land behind in order that others can eat, that the poor can eat, and that even animals can eat. So it's both the refraining from work on the part of the landowner and the provision of food sort of automatically. If you're not hoarding your own food, you're providing it. Uh, the food is then available to all people and even to animals. So that's a first and, and a, you know relatively short account of Shemitah here. If we jump to Dvarim, there's uh, less, less of a focus on land per se, and uh, a bit of a broader focus on, uh, on other considerations. So let's take a look at that. Um, and uh, again, it talks in a similar way, at the end of seven years, you do Shemitah. And uh, this Shemitah is gonna be a little different than what we said before, right? It's the same word. We saw Tishmetena, uh, that's Shemitah. This is the same term, Shemitah, but a different phenomenon. This is gonna be Shemitah's uh, Ksafim, monetary, uh, monetary Shemitah. So Shemitah, uh, this is the matter of Shemitah, Shamot, to release or to let go, to hold off from, not working the land, but rather, any type of, uh, of a, a, a debt collection that one might do. You shouldn't pressure your fellow or your brother because uh, it's been called, there's been uh, this call for a Shemitah, for a withholding, for not collecting uh, this year. And Chazal, the rabbis understand this, not just that you can't collect the seventh year, but that all debts are abolished, right? All debts are undone 
during this seventh year. Uh, whereas uh, towards a, a Gentile, one can uh, one can collect loans. This doesn't apply. But for one's fellow, one's uh, brother, one's fellow Jew, you have to uh, uh, end all loans. And then this is tied to FS. Right. Uh, the hope is that there should be no poor among you, that God will bless you and there won't be poor. This is part of working towards that. Of course, uh, only a few psukim later, the Torah says, there will never cease being poor. So different. the Torah itself has two different uh, uh, accounts or maybe two different sides of the coin as to whether it's possible to solve the problem of, uh, of poverty and maybe a bit of a, a utopian and a realist perspective that are somehow mixed together. But uh, this idea of, of uh, canceling loans at the end of the seventh year, and right, this is a bit of a machlokas, but we seem to paskin that at the, the Shemitah year, that seventh year, you don't work the land. At the end of that year, as we just said, at the end of that year, that's when all loans uh, are abolished as well. And the idea here is to, again, to help the poor, right? There shouldn't be poor on, on the earth. That seems to be the central theme here that's emphasized uh, That's emphasized at the end. Jump ahead a few more psukim. And now we're going to talk not about people who are in uh, in dire straits and need to borrow money and how their problem is resolved by having uh, their loan uh, be undone, but rather uh, people in maybe an even worse situation. So let's look source number three here. If you uh, have sold to you, if you uh, buy as a slave your uh, Jewish uh, or your Hebrew brother or sister, and they work for six years, in the seventh year they go free. And we're not going to get into the question now of uh, is it talking about actually working six years and then the seventh year of them working they go free, or is it talking about the Shemitah year, which is how Chazal uh, understand it, but that, let's not get into that uh, uh, complication. Let, you know, it's, it's the seventh year. It's a similar theme. It sounds like it's the same theme as, as Shemitah, where you go free uh, at, in the seventh year. They don't go free with nothing. They go free with gifts. You should give them uh, various uh, grants as they go free. You should remember you were a slave and God freed you from Egypt. So you should repay that in kind by if you happen to be a slave owner, freeing your slaves. That's why God says, that's why I'm commanding you uh, to do this today, because back in the day, you were freed by God uh, as slaves. So here, again, the idea of the seventh year, um, however you calculate seven years, um, is, is about helping those who are slaves, right? Usually you become a slave, a, a Jewish slave, uh, a Jew becomes a slave when they're in such poverty that they have these debts, they can't even pay the debts, they sell themselves into slavery. So this is maybe a more, uh, a more extreme case, but the same principle of undoing that, uh, that debt, which has become servitude in order to help, uh, to help the poor. And in all these cases that we've seen, right, we've seen Shemitah's uh, Karkaos, Shemitah involving land, Shemitah's Ksafim, Shemitah involving loans, and here uh, the uh, freeing of slaves. In all three cases, it supports the poor, but Obviously, you know, there's no free uh, lunches here. The person, there's the person who has uh, who has the better financial position has to give something up. Either they give up working the land and keeping the fruits of their labor for themselves as opposed to for others, or they give up that debt in the loan, or they give up their slave in the seventh year. 
and that's the idea, right? Uh, uh, you know, there, there definitely seems to be some uh, some idea of uh, you can call it redistribution or rebalancing, where people who are more well off have to sacrifice something in order to support those who are less well off. In some cases, it's more direct. You own a slave, let your slave go free. That's pretty direct. In some cases, it's you know, don't work the land, and then there'll be more food for everyone. You know, don't hoard your own produce. There will be more food for everyone. So this, I, I think, on on a shot level, and we'll see other approaches in a minute. But reading in the straightforward way, the the these sets of psukim in Shmos and in Dvarim, it's uh, it very much seems to be an economic goal. It's about helping those who are less well off by expecting those who are better off to uh, sacrifice something. Um, and uh, now the uh, another another context which me that comes up at the end of of uh, Sefer Vayikra in, in uh, Bahar and Bechukosai, um, we have a bit of a different emphasis. So Vayaber Hashem Moshe Bahar Sinai Lemor, the Abrael B'nei Israel Ve'martalehem Kisavol Ha'aretz Sharanim Lachem Lachem. When you come to the land, this is what God commands: Vishavisaha Aretz Shabbos Lachem. The land should rest, right? Shavisa like Shabbos, Shabbat. The land should rest. A Shabbat Lashem, a Sabbath for God. Right, so here there's more of a divine focus in this account of Shemitah. For six years, you should plant the field and you should uh, prune your vineyard um, and you should gather the cr- crops, right? Gather what it produces. That you should do for six years. Should do, maybe must do. Uh, but again, in the seventh year, it's a Sabbath, Sabbath of Sabbaths for the land, but it's a Shabbos for God, right? We're emphasizing the role of God here. You shouldn't plant uh, your field, you shouldn't sow your field, you shouldn't prune your vines. You also uh, can't cut the things that grow on their own, right? Uh, your field, you plant, and the vines you really need to tend to closely. There are other things that just grow on their own. You can't really cut those either, or the way the rabbis understand it, you can't cut it in a normal way. You have to do it in an unusual way. Uh, and uh, you can't uh, take those, uh, those uh, the, new, the new grapes. It's a land of, uh, uh, of, a, of, the, uh, of, of the Sabbath, a land of rest for the land. This Sabbath of the land will be, meaning what it will mean, what it will result in, it's for you to eat and for your slaves or, or maidservants, for your workers, for those who live, those who happen to live in the land, and for the animals uh, domesticated and wild, food is for everyone, no hoarding of food. So we have at the end here, we have the theme we saw before, that everyone is able to eat, and we actually spell out more people who will be able to eat you, your slaves, workers, people who just happen to live in the land, who don't own land, who just you know move there, uh, and and even the animals again. That's certainly one piece of it. But I think the emphasis in this part, in this section, is God's role in this. And uh, again, if you think of the parallel to Shabbos, that makes a lot of sense. That there's um, really both of these themes, and we'll see there's more than two themes. But at least the two we've talked about exist in Shabbos as well, right? Shabbos is about both recognizing God as creator of the world and sort of pulling back uh, in light of that. But also in giving rest to those who are who have the least power, those who you know the the slaves and uh, animals and others, people should be able to get a break, should, should not have to work every day. And so both of those themes are here as well. The land, uh, the land 
you know, should you should you should recognize God by not working the land in the seventh year, and it should be to support the poor. Now, if one doesn't follow Shemitah on uh, the way it's laid out at the end of Sefer Vayikra, it's pretty bad. So the what's known as the Tochacha of Vayikra, the in, in Parshas Bichukosai, lays out. It says, if you follow my laws, good things will happen. If you don't follow laws, bad things will happen. The mitzvah that the most time is spent on in discussing all the bad things that happen, if you don't follow the law, is actually Shemitah. So we'll read that right here, right? Starting with the sort of header. If you don't keep the laws, all these bad things will happen. And, uh, you know, a good 20 so came into that. We say, I'll destroy the land. Um, fine. And the, your, your enemies will, will plunder it. Uh, your enemies will enter the land. You will be spread out among the nations in exile. I'll send the sword after you. Your land will be desolate. And uh, your cities will be empty. And what's what will that result in? Us, in that situation, then the land will receive its Sabbath, its Shabbos. The land is owed a rest. All these time, this time that it's laid fallow, it'll be resting, right? If everyone's driven out of the land, no one's going to be planting the land. You'll be in your enemy's land as captives. Now the land will uh, reclaim its time, so to speak. We'll get a chance to rest when it hadn't previously. All of the time of its desolation, it'll rest. Because it didn't rest when you were living there, meaning you're not going to keep Shemitah. You're going to work the land in the seventh year, and the land is going to be over those Shemitah years, and when is it going to take them back? When you're sent into exile. So this, this piece of the account, it's not really focusing on God directly. It's not focusing on the poor on others. It's really focusing on the land. The land itself is owed a rest, right? People and, uh, uh, you know, uh, people of all sorts, all sorts of economic uh, situations are owed a rest on Shabbos. Animals are owed a rest. And on the seventh year, the land is actually owed a rest. And if it doesn't receive that, it'll make sure it gets it uh, in, in a way that'll be less pleasing for uh, less comfortable for the Jewish people. And it goes on more discussion of, of reclaiming those Shemitah years. We're not going to go further into reading that. But these are some of the biblical themes of, of Shemitah, both Shemitah of the land and Shemitah of money and also of, of slaves in the seventh year. And we didn't even get into Yovel, which extends each of these themes. Um, and, then, uh, and then within the theme of Shemitah of the land, there's really several different parties who are central, both the person working should not work, should, should hold back just like Shabbos. Um, that's a way of recognizing God. It's a way of supporting others, supporting those who are less well off financially, both Shemitah of the land and the other economic forms of Shemitah also. And the land itself is benefited. And uh, you know the land gets pretty upset if it doesn't receive its Shemitah. So those are, these are just reading through the Pesukim. This is some of what we get. Um, you know, the Rambam has a list of various mitzvot relating to Shemitah. And Yovel, the first nine are about Shemitah. Maybe we'll just very quickly skim through this, um, right? Chetishbos ha'aretz, the land has to rest. Sholoyavod avodas ha'aretz v'shanazu, right? That the positive mitzvah is the land should rest. The negative one is a person shouldn't work the land. Then sholoyavod avodas ha'ilan, you shouldn't you shouldn't perform work on trees. Sholoyikzor asfiach kederach hakotzer, you shouldn't cut growths, natural growths on plants the normal way. Sholoyikzor anazirim kederach hakotzer, same thing for for grapes that grow. 
that you should uh, release what the land produces, right? Not hoard the food on your land. So that you should uh, release all of your loans. You shouldn't pressure a borrower. And that you shouldn't refrain from lending before the Shemitah because you say, well, it's all Shemitah. My loan is not going to get paid back. You can't do that. We'll, we'll see that more. We'll see the psikkim about that in a minute. That'll be relevant to another side of this. So this, I think, you know, the crash course, what are the main psikkim about Shemitah? What are the main themes? We're going to go into the themes a bit more, but that's like the 15-minute version. Um, any questions or uh, thoughts or concerns or ideas uh, or other themes that we've left out? I don't know. We may even get to some more. But uh, just before we go on, any, any thoughts? Okay. Not that's also okay. And so let's move on now. Um, to later sources that discuss the, the, some of the reasons, some of the themes of Shemitah. Um, and uh, just to, you know, always helps to get the, these additional perspectives, even though we've already seen uh, a lot of these in the Psukim to one degree or another. So first we have a Gemara. The Gemara seems like it asks the, the question very directly. My Tama, the Shviyasa, what is the reason? What's the purpose or the reason for Shviyas, Shemitah? What's the purpose of Shemitah? And Amar this is Rabbi Abau talking. It's a more complicated, longer story. But Rabbi Abau says, the There were two people talking. Rabbi Abau was sort of the uh, brought in to this, this, you know, to to work out the dispute. He says, "Here's something you'll both agree." Amar Yisrael, right? God says to Israel, "Ziru sheish plan for six years, and then stop the seventh year." Right? So that you recognize that the earth, that the land, is mine. This is the the classic theme of recognizing God. Uh, it's a Shemitah for God. Maybe that would be uh, the, the Pasuk that, that ties into this the most. It's a Shemitah for God. One should recognize God as creator, God as owner of the earth. Um, and, and again, this ties into the theme of Shabbos. One way, one way of thinking about it that, uh, uh, that I, I heard from uh, Ray Rosenzweig, I've always found very interesting, is there's sort of a, a, a dialectic here. Right? We're supposed to work the land and work in general in terms of you know, the six days or the six years as a way of emulating God. God created, we should create. And when we stop in the seventh year, we're both doing so for Shabbos at least because God stopped on the seventh day. We stop like God, but our stopping is also unlike God because God could have continued and chose to rest. Whereas we at some point, you know, humans can't continue forever and we sort of have to rest. So by emulating God, we're also recognizing the, uh, the gap between uh, divine and human rest. And uh, Shviya, so of course, there's no passage that says that God rested on the seventh year, but I think both of these themes are here as well. Both the idea of, uh, you know, we rest because God said to rest in the seventh year. And, but also there's a, there's a deeper point that if we don't rest, if we don't stop, if we don't pull back uh, being mortal as we are, being limited as we are, uh, things, uh, things really won't continue. Humans need rest. That's one of the things that defines us as humans. So even as we're emulating God and being creative in the world, we need at some point to pull back. And maybe that's a theme here as well, recognizing God as creator of the world and uh, that sort of existential gap between divinity and humanity. In any event, that's the Gemara uh, with maybe a little bit of elaboration and uh, that focusing on the divine angle here. The Ramah in Moran Avuchim has a few different perspectives that he puts forward. He says, so about all these mitzvot in terms of Shemitah and Yovah, what's their purpose? Mehem lechemla al adam adam kulam. 
So some of them are based on sympathy for humanity and harkava, sort of expanding or, or uh, helping humanity as a whole. It's about helping people be able to eat, right? It's a, it's a form of social welfare. Another purpose, not just to help people and animals, sort of throws that in at the end of the Pasuk, but also to support the land. The land strengthens itself when it rests, right? This is like uh, the idea of crop rotation, but instead of rotation, it's like absolute, right? Let the land lie fallow. That's actually better for the crops uh, for the next six years. So that's another purpose. Umehem, chanina ba'avadim va'aniim. And then there's another purpose of, uh, you know, uh, granting forgiveness or clemency or, you know, supporting, helping out uh, those who are slaves or poor. Letting go of one's, uh, of debt or of slaves. And then there's another piece, we didn't get into this, it's more of a Yovel theme, that you can't sell your land in perpetuity. Everyone who, uh, who came from Egypt has a plot of land, their descendants all have a plot of land, you can't alienate your land from your family line. Um, you, if you sell it, it will come back by the Shemitah to make sure that you know, every, uh, every such family has, uh, has some land because land is capital, right? If you didn't have land, you had to be, you had to work under someone, you basically were gonna remain in a very difficult economic position basically forever. Without land, you're never gonna do well in, in an agricultural society. So those are the themes that the Ramam lays out. Focusing on the Shemitah ones, it's about helping the poor, as we said, both agriculturally, right, both through the Shemitah of the land and through Shemitah of loans and through Shemitah of slaves. And uh, it's also about the land. The land itself gets a break, right? As we saw in uh, in Bichukosai, in the Tokha, where it says that if the land isn't treated well, it's going to uh, it's going to take back its free years. So those are a couple of themes from the Rambam. Um, and again, everyone should feel welcome to raise questions along the way. Rav Tzvi Hirsch Kalisher, a, uh, modern, uh, a modern commentary, throws in a couple of other ideas. Um, he, he says, Tamei Ashmiti, Yipardi L'Kametzrachim, several categories. Ha'achas, L'Horus of Adam, Kilo Lehema Aretz, Kilo First, the theme, as we've said, that people should recognize that the land belongs to God. Fine. And he actually throws in a nice angle here. He says, well, you might say, if the land is God's, why should I work the land? That's why the Torah needs to come in and say, no, you need to have a commandment to work the land. Because if you really internalized the idea of Shemitah to its fullest extent, you would say, well, it's not my land. Why should I work it? Let me allow, you know, let God deal with it, not my problem. So no, there is a mitzvah to deal with it. And, you know, there's some sort of partnership here. Maybe God owns the land, but we're empowered to use it most of the time, as long as we then recognize that it's God's. And he quotes the Gemara that we saw before, um, right, you should recognize, you should remember, you should know that the land is God's, and uh, you, you may have rights to use it, but not, not uh, unlimited rights, and that's what the Shemitah year is about. So that's one reason. Derech uh, Shnia, a second reason, This will become relevant as we talk about the modern challenge, but the idea that it's about standing up to a test and believing in God, right, having faith, because, you know, it's, it's like a big risk to say, take off this year. It's not like people had like a bank account with savings. Um, you, you know, you had maybe a little bit of, of food that you could save from year to year, but not too much. They didn't even have like freezers, you know? 
So um, saying that, you know, whatever the land grows, I'll eat that, you're really taking a risk. And so the idea here is to foster a sense of belief in God. God's eyes are upon us all year round. And the idea is to internalize this. Right? Blessed is the person who trusts God. Even if a person stops working, God will say, okay, let the land on its own, despite not being planted, despite not being uh, pruned and everything properly, let it produce uh, a blessing. Let it produce enough food for you to live anyway. Right? If you're willing to make that sort of trust fall, to, to give up everything, not work for a whole year, that will uh, engender within you a trust of God's providence in every detail of one's life. Right? From God, a person's steps are uh, directed. There's also a social component. Right? The, the rich person shouldn't feel like they can hold themselves over the poor. They look, I'm rich. No, Amra Torah, in the seventh year at least, everyone's equal. Everyone, right, all of your capital, right, what does it mean to be rich? To be rich means to have land, because land is capital. That's the main source of capital they had. Uh, to be rich means to have land. In the seventh year, no one can use their land. So all social differentiation basically falls away. Anyone can go into anyone's field and take what grows there. No one has special rights to their land. So being rich, you're no better off than being poor. The question is, how much food can you scrounge together? So both the idea of trusting God, but also the, the sort of the flip side, the social side of that, that if everyone is put in this compromised position and has to trust God, that creates a sense of equity among people, right? Everyone is equally disadvantaged over that year. So that's a second, and really second 2A and 2B. And then yet another reason, this is an important theme also that we're going to come back to in future shiurim. That a person shouldn't always be occupied with pursuit of, uh, of uh, you know, one's monetary well-being or the, the physical. At least one year out of every seven, you should get a little bit of freedom for your soul. Instead of working just to, you know, to be able to eat, be able to have some time, take off from the, uh, the daily grind. Uh, and uh, spend some time for freedom for your soul. If you're not working in the field, what will you spend your time doing? You'll spend your time learning Torah or studying wisdom, uh, right? Going to Shirim. what could be better? What about people who are not intellectual? Well, there's something for them to do too. They can, uh, they can work on different uh, creative projects, building things or uh, uh, you know, crafting things, but you don't have time to do if you're working in the field, but you have a year off, this gives you a chance uh, for you know, labor differentiation. Instead of everyone working in the field, you can be creative. You can you know, either intellectually or just in terms of producing things. Right? The land of Israel should have people producing nice buildings too, not everyone working in the field so that uh, there's enough food. Those uh, who are thinking craftspeople, they can come up with inventions, right? This is, Shemitah is the invention year. Uh, it's when you have time to go and tinker and figure out what the next invention will be to improve society overall. So maybe it's short-term 
bad for the economy, but long-term it's good for the economy because people have time to innovate. Of course, someone who has knowledge of Torah is able to learn, uh, says Rav Kalisher, should study only Torah and the matters of fear of God because that's true happiness. But it's a very interesting theme here. The point of Shemitah, it's not just recognizing God. It's not just equality among people. It's not just giving the land some freedom. It's also just thinking about how we schedule our days and our years and uh, having some time for ourselves. We'll talk about this more coming up, but you know, there's a reason why sabbaticals, let's say uh, you know, academic sabbatical year, they're called sabbaticals. It's a chance to uh, you know, stop doing what you do every, every day, every, uh, every year, and spend time studying something different. So that's what uh, Rav Kalisher says is the theme, or at least one of the themes of Shemitah. And again, people can do different things. You can study Torah, you can study wisdom, you can study fear of God or, or work on your fear of God. You can, you know, try innovating new procedures. You can, uh, you can work on your craft, you can build things. There's all sorts of things that someone can do uh, just to change it up a little bit in the Shemitah year. So another important theme of Shemitah uh, from Rav, uh, Rav Kalisher. Um, and uh, let's jump now to the, uh, the Sefer Achinuch and some of the reasons that he gives. So first he discusses the mitzvah, a person should render ownerless whatever the land produces in the seventh year. Um, fine. And uh, right, anyone can take that. Okay. And then he says, right, the reasons of the mitzvah are like Boa Bili Benu. Right, we should recognize and deeply, uh, deeply uh, chisel into our thoughts this idea that uh, the world was created. God created the world in six days. Fine. Um, fine. And then he talks about how there are people who think that things come from us and not from God. And we want to undo that. And that's part of the idea of Shemitah, of pulling back from the land. And then at the end, he adds something else here. Another, uh, another personal quality that's relevant. There's another, another uh, found uh, uh, positive result here. Right? The quality of uh, being able to forego something, to give something up. There's nothing like someone who gives with no hope of receiving in return, um, which sort of is what happens. You plant the land the year before Shemitah, you know that whatever you're planting, will maybe you'll get some of it, but it can go to a lot of people. That's the idea of Vatranos. You know what? I'll do something good for the world. I won't get most of it, and that's okay. I don't need to only focus on my bottom line. I can do good things for others. I just say, you know, that can be part of my generosity. That's an important, an important piece as well. The ode. Right, as we saw with Rukalisher, this idea of faith in God. Um, right, you give up your land, that your land grew, that you worked so hard in your, your, uh, you know, your heritage. This is your piece of land going back generations. And you give that all up. You won't be too, uh, too uh, spendthrift and too uh, unwilling to give to others, and you also won't lack for faith. It's good practice for both being a giving person 
and being a person of faith. So those are more themes from the Sefer Achinach. Um, we have a couple of quick last things, but before that, it looks like we have a question. Um, so uh, uh, Gabriel's comment, uh, interesting how Rav Kalisher's conception contrasts with Shabbos. It's not a total rest. Instead, you're doing other forms of labor like building and inventing. So I think that's a great point. Um, and right, the rest is different in quality, right? It's a rest of the land. It's not an absolute rest. It's not like, you know, the prohibitions of Shabbos apply to everyone every day. I think, uh, you know, I think part of the answer to that is for a day, it's, it's reasonable that people cannot do any sort of creative activity. If you're talking about a time span of a year, uh, it's a little hard to, you know, I think it would be very difficult for people to not do, have any creative thoughts or ideas. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a different model, right? It's not the same as Shabbos. It ends up, there's some parallel, but it ends up fairly different because actually it's, it ends up promoting creativity. Now there are people who will tell you that not working on Shabbos makes you work better the rest of the week. That, that may be not exactly parallel, but some similarity there. But yeah, that's a good point. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. Okay, our last two themes here, one from the Zohar, um, and we'll read just a piece of this. It says, Bechol Shemitah Shemitah, Kroz Anafik. So this announcement goes out every Shemitah. Is Kanishu Guvrin Benashin, Bechol Inan Bnei Mehem Gather together, men and women, uh, and all sons of faith, Usliku Kedain Kulu Mispashtin, Usliku, right, and come up, come up to heaven. And then the people actually do go, do go up to heaven. Um, every Everyone who's um, uh, who's been uh, weaned off of milk, they all go up. They go up to the heavenly yeshiva. And they're all super happy. Everyone's rejoicing. Um, um, fine, and like the happiest happiness ever. And that, that uh, youth who has the keys of his master in his hand, this is like one of God's helpers. So one commentary says it's Metatron. Okay, I don't really know from these things. Um, and he says, There's this, this fellow, this uh, divine helper, who says, Some words, both new and old. So what's this talking about? It's talking about like giving a shear, right? So uh, Metatron gives a Gemara shear in heaven or something like that for everyone. Now, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not a Kabbalist. But I think the idea here is what's happening in heaven is representative of what can be happening on earth as well. It's a chance for study, for studying Torah. Um, if you don't have a divine helper to give shear, so someone else can give shear. But that's one of the main uh, one of the main opportunities of Shemitah as represented by the Zohar. And then let's quickly look at Abarbanel's approach here. Um, and he really focuses on the parallel between Shemitah and Shabbos. Right, uh, just like the nation stops on the seventh day, that rep that reminds us of the creation of the world. The land rests on the seventh year, and that's uh, the equivalent thing. Um, fine, and that really, and, and this attests back to the God creating the world, right? Um, fine. And right, and then he mentions lamala kedushasa imheyosa built midaberes. So land, sort of according to the level of its sanctity, because it doesn't speak. Right, people speak. And there's like uh, things that can't speak, things that can speak. There's different levels of uh, you know uh, personhood or humanity or what he calls here sanctity. 
So people are a lot holier than land because people can speak among other things and land can't. Since land is less holy, right? So for people, what you accomplish in one day, it takes the land the whole year. Right? For a person to make a statement of not do, of doing things differently, you have to, you, you cannot work for a day and that's different because people work every day. Usually you do some sort of creative activity every day. Whereas the land, because land can't speak, it's not, it's not, a, it doesn't communicate well. So it takes a little longer. It takes the land a year or a whole produce cycle in order to be able to say, to, to reflect, to express that it's functioning differently. So that's a Barbanel. I, I think this uh, shows the greater connection between Shabbos and Shemitah. Um, with the interesting, you know, the interesting uh, translation there uh, from a day to a year. In any event, those are some of the themes of Shemitah, which we, we fleshed out, some of which are very clearly in the Pesukim, some of which are, um, you know, a further step, a creative interpretive step to bring them out. Um, but uh, if there's any questions on that, I'll take them. If not, we'll move ahead to uh, some of the challenges of Shemitah, but from a long time ago. The challenges started a while ago. But first, any questions or comments? All right, so before we get to the challenges of Shemitah today, we should jump back and start by talking about the challenges of Shemitah in the beginning of Shemitah, right? So already in the Torah, in the Torah, the Torah already expresses some of these challenges. So Vayikra um, Kafhei, right? This is right after teaching, the main teaching of Shemitah. It says, Keep my laws, you'll live on the land safely. The land will produce fruit, you'll live they're uh, uh, safely fine. But now here's the problem. But if you say, this is crazy. We're going to spend the whole year not working. What are we going to eat? We're not going to plant and we're not going to harvest. So how are we going to live? So God promises something. I've commanded my blessing to you in this sixth year. The sixth year will make a triple year of produce. It'll be enough for year six. Year seven, where you're not, you're not harvesting, and year eight, where you didn't harvest in year seven, you didn't plant in year seven, so you won't harvest in year eight. So, on the there's different interpretations of this line, but at least one interpretation, you basically need the sixth year to be triply effective, because you're in the seventh year you're taking off, both harvesting and planting, so you're losing two years in a sense, or up to two years. The sixth year needs to be triply effective, and that's God's promise. God will command uh, the blessing to be triple in that sixth year. Then you'll plant again in year eight. You'll start all over. And then by year nine, you'll have the produce from year eight, but you'll have been tied it over by God's blessing. We see that Shemitah, pretty clear from these psukim, Shemitah was very hard in the time of the Torah. That's why God has to say, like, you're going to be worried about this. Here's how I'm going to solve it. I'll make a miracle happen that you'll get extra food uh, in year six, a triply good year. And uh, also outside of the Shemitah of the land, in terms of, uh, in terms of the Shemitah of, of loans, the undoing of loans, of debt, there's also a similar worry. Source 14 here, right? The Torah says, right, cancel your loans in the seventh year. We saw this in the Ramah before. You'll have this crazy, rebellious idea in your heart. It's almost the seventh year. I'm not going to loan this person money. Because the Shemitah is in six months, and then my, the loan's going to go away. Even if he says he'll pay it back, what are the chances he'll pay it back in time for Shemitah? That's crazy. I'm giving him, I'm giving away the money. I'm not going to make that loan. 
Well, don't do that. It's very bad. He'll cry out to God and you'll be a sinner. Rather, what should you do? You should certainly give him that loan. Not only that, you shouldn't be unhappy. You should be happy about it. Why? God will bless you because you gave him that loan. Well, we see both Shemitah of land and Shemitah of loans. There's a worry, and it's a very reasonable worry, right? You ask any economist, should I not plant for a year? That'll basically ruin two, two uh, harvest cycles. Or you ask an economist, should I lend someone money when the loan's going to go away very soon and they don't really have an incentive to pay back? And it's basically all downside, no upside because you can't even charge interest. Any economist would tell you these are terrible business propositions. This is the worst idea ever. But that's not what the Torah says. The Torah says to do this. Why? In both cases, it's to help out. Well, in, in this, in the second case, it's to help out the poor. In the first case, there's a whole variety of reasons why one should do it. Um, but it's clear that people are worried about this. Not only in the time of the Torah, but also in the time of the Gemara. Um, Rebbe, Ba'i, Mishri, Shmitzah. This is the Yerushalmi Rebbe, Ruhira Nasi, wanted to permit Shemitah. This is Shemitah of the land. There's a story, we're not going to read it inside. The story of Pentos Benyar comes and says, hey, why are there plants on your land? And Rebbe's and like, what are plants doing? And he's like, well, they look very nice, don't they? And it's like, that's not the point. They, so there's a little controversial. Rebbe wanted somehow to permit Shemitah. It's not exactly clear if he really fully means to permit. Maybe you think it's only prohibited on a rabbinic level. Without going into the details there, there is a move to do that. More famously, I didn't put this on the sheet because it's not about land, um, but the Hillel's uh, principle, right? Hillel had a workaround for loans that you can actually collect the loan later, working around the biblical prohibition because no one was loaning, right? Because they said it's irrational economically to make this loan close to the Shemitah year. So they created a workaround for making such loans. So we see Shemitah has always been hard, right? The idea that Shemitah is hard is not a modern phenomenon. Um, it's always been hard. Now, the challenge, the challenge happens, right? So let's, let's talk history a little bit, um, right? Uh, from the time of the, of the Gemara, from the time, well, you know, there, always, there, were, there always were at least some Jews in Eretz Yisrael, but large communities of Jews in Eretz Yisrael um, declined precipitously from the destruction of the temple in the year 70 for the centuries going forward, and it kept declining. We don't know exactly when it became very, very small, but a few centuries, uh, you know, some number of centuries after it became a very small community. And uh, so the, some people who were there weren't doing well anyways. Who knows, maybe you know, there were uh, other members of the Roman Empire who were working the land or whatnot. Somehow they subsisted, they managed, and it wasn't easy as Rebbe says. Um, but for a long time, there just weren't any Jews working the land at all, or the number was so small that this wasn't really a question of uh, that worth discussing. When we get to the end of the 19th century and Jews return to the land of Israel in large numbers and start working the land, this is part of their uh, you know, their, their religious goal as religious Zionists, working the land is a mitzvah and uh, building the nation and building its economy or as, is a mitzvah, again, nation loosely, obviously not, not a formal state, but building the yeshiv, building the Jewish settlement in the land of Israel was a mitzvah. Then all, all of a sudden we say, they say, wait a second, what do we do in the Shemitah year? And in the 1880s, this question really uh, raised its head. Rav Cook dealt with it a few iterations later, a few decades later, um, maybe you know, um, the most famous uh, you know, source of a permissive view regarding Shemitah. And we'll look at his description of why Shemitah today, by today, I mean like 120 years ago, is, uh, is, not, is somehow different than Shemitah originally. So he says, right? We do this thing of selling the land. We'll talk about this more next week. 
to get around the prohibitions of Shemitah. No one ever did this before. We made up this new thing. Um, earlier rabbis didn't rely on this. No one did this in the Mishnah or the, the Yerushalmi. So why are we making up these new things? He gives a few reasons, but one of them is as follows. He says, Early on, back in the good old days, back in the time of the Torah and the Mishnah and whatnot, it wasn't so necessary. So they didn't go into this permission, right? There, theoretically, they could have found this loophole, but you don't want to rely on it if you don't have to. Fine. Um, and uh, fine, you should always hide your permissions if, if they're not needed. That's, that's his theme here. That's sort of his principle. Um, when, on the other hand, when it becomes absolutely necessary, then it's a mitzvah to find this permission and to, to discuss this permission. Right? People are going to not be able to keep the mitzvah and they're going to sin. You should find a way to work around the mitzvah instead. Um, and that's why right, talks about Mechiras Chametz, selling Chametz on Pesach, which no one used to do until a few centuries ago, and then people did because people couldn't uh, with, withstand that prohibition anymore. Now to our purpose, right? Regarding our topic. In the early days, why did you plant 2,000 years ago? Everyone was a subsistence farmer. You planted food for you to eat the food. Basically, that's how it worked. Back then, you could say, keep Shemitah, don't plant for a year. You'll have maybe somewhat less food. It'll be a bit less predictable. But you're a subsistence farmer. You'll eat what's in your area, just like you do every year. Maybe it'll be a bit less this year. Okay, you'll manage. That's actually what the Torah wanted, right? The subsistence farmers, they'll manage. The poor who don't have land will actually do better the Shemitah year. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's why no loopholes were proposed back then. I will be a menu, but nowadays, you know, in the uh, the Yishuv, in the 1880s and forward, she is soda yishuv who they mischar bepri tfuos hamoshavos. What what's the business plan? It's not subsistence farming. You have to you you plant a lot of oranges in Jaffa, and then you sell those in the region, right? So that's not subsistence farming. You farm your product and you uh, you then uh, trade. It's a barter economy. Maybe they had money too. But the point is, you weren't just eating what you you grew. You were producing it in mass numbers. No one needs that many oranges, and then you were selling it and buying other things. If you cut off the path of business, you're not allowed to do business in the Shemitah. You're not allowed to sell things, right? Because as soon as you sell it, that means you hoarded it, right? You're not just, you're only allowed to use it for yourself. You're not allowed to sell any oranges, Shemitah year. Your whole business is lost, right? You're, you're a supplier of oranges. Everyone expects you to, to export a thousand oranges every month. Then you say, okay, for the next uh, 12 months, I'm going to be importing, exporting zero oranges. You're going to lose your business. No one's going to do business. And then they're not going to come back next year either. You're just going to destroy your whole business. Then it's a mitzvah. It's an obligation to do the, the sale of the land and work around this. Because, uh, right, of course, the rabbis have to agree every time to do the, doing this. This is the right path. Till God has mercy and the good days come back. 
Right? Until we're able to keep Shemitah properly with no workaround. Here's the translation. Uh, hopefully people were able to follow it either in the Hebrew or in the translation on the file they had. But in any event, that's Rav Cook. What's really interesting about this is it's not, right? I mean, the, our quality of life is much higher, even 100 years ago, was much higher than it was 2,000 years ago. That's not news to anyone. Uh, in terms of like the amount of food that we're able to produce on the same amount of land, that you know that, that's pretty clear. So then, why is it all of a sudden harder? So Rav Cook gives the explanation here. It's not that it's not that they were producing less and like they were more desperate. It's the nature of the economy shifted, right? Subsistence farming works well with shemitah, but an economy where everyone specializes and then sells what they have that does not work well with shemitah at all because all you'll eat is oranges for a year. That will not end well. So it's the nature of the economy that makes it impossible. Now, interestingly, we'll read this very quickly. Rav Vitman, who's uh, the, the uh, head rabbi for Tznuva and has been very involved in the Heter Mechira over several cycles. This is an article that he wrote a few Shemitah cycles ago uh, and translated into English. He takes the opposite view in a sense. He says, observance of the commandment of Shemitah today is easier and simpler than during the periods of the Torah, Second Temple, Mishnah, and Talmud. And not that it's harder, but it's simpler. Now, I think he means to say it's simpler if you take into account that there's a hetter mechir, that there's a workaround. But um, he says the range of solutions is, is wider, we can meet the test, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, that's his approach. We're not gonna go into details on this, I just brought it up because it's sort of a counterpoint to Rav Cook, you know, 100 years later, but still a counterpoint to Rav Cook. And it makes you wonder, according to the approaches that say that Shemitah is about faith, about trusting in God, um, you know, wouldn't that have been an alternate approach? And we'll talk about this more next week, the, the controversy over the Heter Mechira, over selling the land and that whole story, but saying it's so difficult, we can't do it. It was always difficult. Okay, maybe it's difficult now in a different way, but maybe it's actually easier in other ways. And, you know, is it so crazy to say, no, let's just uh, trust God, even though it's risk, risky, we may lose all our businesses, there may be long-term repercussions, but maybe we should trust God and do it anyways. Obviously, that's not the approach we Cook took. Other people did take that approach. But just putting that, out there. Um, a piece by uh, uh, Gerald Blitzstein, this is one of the earlier thought pieces on Shemitah, interesting in general, but one point here that we're going to focus on, he talks about how Shemitah is really about uh, undermining social norms, right? So we saw this in terms of like the rich getting, you know, getting poorer, the poor getting richer, some sort of redistribution. Also the idea that the Gemara talks about how you should take down your fences. There shouldn't be this idea of private property during the Shemitah year. So the way he thinks about it, he says the conflict between the radical demands of Shviz or Shemitah on the one hand and the social reality it seeks to undermine on the other is a paradigm of the history of the institution. Ironically, the more potent its observance became, the less were its chances of survival, right? The more Shemitah undoes or is trying to undo the world, the more of a chance people are gonna say, we can't do that, we need to find the workaround. Uh, we have here more than the commonplace struggle between radical religious demand and an unconsenting world. Rather, we have here an institution that's essence contests the legitimacy of that world. Right? It's not, Shemitah is definitionally countercultural, threatens to become not merely the symbolic repudiation of its normal social economic uh, patterns, but its real menace and ultimately its victor. And he says, the potency of Shemitah has been its historical doom. Right? It's so powerful that it died, Shemitah. Uh, in the course of history, this ideal was held to be shattered. The more effective Shemitah became, or is judged to have become, the harder the world fought back. And the quote we saw before, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi wish to abolish Shemitah. This is the dynamic of a centuries old struggle between those who would maintain the Shemitah and those who would not. So 
it's sort of the Achilles heel of, Shvi, of Shemitah. It's so powerful. It's trying to do so much that uh, at some point, or really at every point, people might say this is too difficult. And, uh, you know, as a historical matter, uh, the last uh, 130, 130 or so years, in fact, it has not been widely observed in its traditional sense. We'll talk about that more next week. Now, just one way of thinking about all this, right, that Shemitah has always been hard. Now it's somehow harder or harder in a different way or presents new challenges and therefore has largely been undone through this idea of the sale of the, selling, the, selling the land and then undoing the sanctity, undoing the prohibition to some degree, which we'll talk about in detail next week. How should we think about this? So here's a, a piece. It's a, there's a longer article, but here's a selection from... Uh, uh, Ravar Lichtenstein, my uh, my Rebbe, from he wrote this already 5733 originally. So this that's uh, seven shemitas ago, a couple years ago. But the approach is the same here. We'll read a piece of that and then we'll take some questions. It says the simple fact is that the shemitah year 5733 constitutes a halachic tragedy. It's not pleasant to hear this, less pleasant to say it, but it's the cold bitter truth, and there's no escaping it except through deception. The experience of conflict and contradiction. That's right. What is tragedy? Tragedy is about conflict, contradiction, not just ruin and loss, but that things don't really fit the way that they're supposed to. And he says the purpose and intent of the mitzvot related to Shemitah, the Sabbath of the land, instills an awareness of God's absolute and exclusive ownership of the land, his authority over it, number one. Number two, it liberates farmers from the drudgery of everyday chores in order to afford them time for the contemplation of eternal issues. And third, it has a clear democratic strain, it provides equality, uh, uh, for great and small. Right? And we saw all those themes and more before. So what remains uh, for us today of this enchanting vision? Nothing but a hollow shell. There's nothing of the original vi vision of Shemitah that exists today, today being 50 years ago in Israel, but probably also today. The transition from an agricultural economy to an industrial one has taken most of the prohibition of work off the agenda for nearly everyone, right? How many people work in agriculture in Israel? A small fraction of the population. For most people, that, fine. So that's not so bad. That's Convenient, right? You just don't have to confront the prohibitions. But what about the prohibitions pertaining to consumption and the obligation to treat the produce of the Shemitah year as Kedusha, as, sanct as sanctified, so that the uh, situation is more serious? And what are the options that are available for people who want to keep the Kedusha of Shemitah? They can rely on a legal fiction that, woe to the ears that hear this, the fields of Eretz Yisrael, from Lebanon to Egypt, from the Mediterranean to Jordan, have been sold or leased to non-Jews, right? Not really the type of thing you'd expect religious Zionists to all line up behind, which they actually did, but the get, getting rid of the land of Israel, giving it up uh, every seven years. And if you don't want to rely on this hat there, so then what do you do? You can import produce from abroad, or maybe you'll buy produce from fields cultivated by Arabs. Um, and uh, okay, so then you run to the fruit and vegetable seller, you pay exorbitant prices for produce by non-Jews, and it's an annoying trip and expense, and you're half proud at yourself about this, but what does that have to do with the biblical rule, you may eat whatever the land produces during the Sabbath? right? Whatever the land produces, don't work the land, just take that food. Where does that come up? Is there any recognizable connection between this perhaps overweening pride and the feeling of man's subservience and the creator's supremacy that lies at the heart of the mitzvah shvita that's engendered by performing it? Right? The idea of like, you know, I'm very firm. I don't rely on hetero I buy fruit from Gentiles. Okay, great. So you're not relying on that. Are you, are you fulfilling the mitzvah shvita? You're not. The mitzvah shemitah is not to buy produce from non-Jews. You're, you're also, that's just a different form of a workaround of the mitzvah. You're not like, you know, sitting back and letting the land produce what it does and taking it and relying on God by faith. And he says very clearly, he's not, he's not criticizing those who rely on the heter. And, um, you know, he's not saying we should ignore the halakhic obligations either. 
He says, I insist on only one thing, that we should recognize the reality and lament it. How could we ever embrace Shemitah? And then he goes on for a piece here. So some people like to say that Prisbal, it's this great innovation by the rabbis. The rabbis can solve all problems. The proof of that is the Prisbal, a workaround for the cancellation of loans. And he says, do you think Hillel was happy about undoing the, pro the biblical approach to loans? Anything but, right? He's undermining the Torah's principle. Obviously, he did that only with a heavy heart. And what Hillel had to do in the time of the Mishnah in terms of loans is what we, by which he means like, uh, you know, Israeli society as a whole or religious Zionism as a whole have had to do with Shemitah of the land. But it shouldn't make us happy. It's a halachic tragedy. So I think with this, we've hopefully set the stage. We looked at the principles of Shemitah, the different biblical passages, the different themes. We've seen how Shemitah is challenging and was challenging from the beginning. Maybe now it's challenging in a different way because of the changes to the economy. Um, and the result is that as, uh, as Professor Blitzstein pointed out, Shemitah's radical nature undermined itself. It's too radical uh, for it to be successful. And what we're left with is, as Rav Luchtenstein put it, a halachic tragedy, where the category, people who have the Hatham or don't, whatever your view is, whatever your halachic position is, you're not actually fulfilling the mitzvah in any real way. And what's left of Shemitah? We have these nice themes, and then we have practice, which has no connection to them whatsoever. And, and that's, a, that's a tragedy in the view of Rav Luchtenstein. So I think we've set the stage for the next two weeks. Next week, we're going to look at the specifics of the halachic problems of Heter Mechira, ways or alternatives to Heter Mechira, opposition to Heter Mechira, but how do you deal with the prohibition to produce food any or to grow food actively in the land when you have a modern economy that needs to interact with others? That's one point. And then the following week, we're going to talk about how can, how might people try to rescue some of the values of Shemitah to one degree or another, not, not as they were in the original sense fully, but at least to have some uh, some degree of these values. Okay, um, questions. I see that Ozzy posted something, so I'll read that now. The Ran Nadarm 28a says, the land belongs in partnership with your fellow Jew, does not belong to the government. Is that the Ran about uh, Dina Demachus Dina not applying in Eretz Yisrael? Is that the, yeah. Um, so, um, so you can't see the land without the permission of the other partners. I think the Rashbam, who believes in a social contract, right, also in the uh, fine would disagree and probably say the government can sell the land with the consent of the people. Or if Cook implies the Torah did not anticipate the change in the economy, applying the efficiency of the Torah's laws lack fair. Okay, so there's two points here. One is about the technicalities of is the government, does the government have the right to sell the land? We'll talk about that more next week, and I'll hold that thought. The other point I think is more relevant, and it's an interesting one, which is Rav Cook is saying the Torah didn't anticipate the change in the economy. So I don't know if Rav Cook would agree with you. I think what Rav Cook would say is the Torah anticipated it. The Torah knew that there was this loophole. This loophole is sort of built in, just you weren't supposed to use it, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, break glass only in case of emergency sort of thing, right? So you had to wait until the emergency, until the e economy shifted uh, in order to, for it to be appropriate to use that permission. The permission was always there. It just wasn't proper to use it until uh, the modern economy. So I think where Cook would say it's not a deficiency in the Torah. It's a Torah that has two modes, that has, you know, agricultural mode and then industrial mode or, you know, or whatever you want to call it, subsistence versus, uh, uh, versus uh, barter. Um, but yeah, that's what I respond there. Any other questions? Okay. Well, everyone have a good uh, Shemitah filled week one way or another, and uh, looking forward to picking up the learning with all of you. Thank you, Rabbi Zakir, uh, for a wonderful class and for everyone uh, here.
for participating in Drisha's learning community. Uh, Rabbi Zakir mentioned a few times throughout the class, Cruz Bowl, which Rabbi Leasarna will be speaking about uh, tomorrow night. The class has already started, but you can always view previous recordings on our website. And uh, we have lots of other classes happening, many on Shemitah starting this week. Ravneet uh, Gila Rosen will be teaching a class, Shemitah Radical Perspectives on Society, Land, and the Individual. And of course, Rabbi Silver continues teaching his three classes on Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. Um, you are welcome to join any or all. Uh, we were not able to book Metatron for this month, but stay tuned and be well.